Well, thank you for that song. I love that song. And it does speak. Amen. So thank you for sharing. What a joy it is to be with you tonight. Uh, you know, it's amazing that you get Baptists to come out on any night, but especially a weeknight. So I'm grateful that you're here. When, uh, when Pastor Sammy and, and Kyle contacted me, I thought, was well, anybody going to show up that thing besides us three? And so I'm grateful that you're here, and it'd be my blessing to have this time to share with you. I, uh, I heard what Pastor Sammy said about returning to the Word. We, we need to read it. We need to study it. We, we need to preach it. We need, we need to know it. We need to believe it. But at some point, we've got to obey it. And that's what I want to sort of focus our attention on in this time together uh, tonight, if we, if we may. I'm going to quote the Great Commission. And I'm going to leave out two words and see if you can discover what those two words are. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Did you get the two words I left out? I'm hearing some talking, but I don't catch it. What are you saying to them? To observe. He didn't say, teach them all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That's not what he said at all. He said, teach them to observe all things. Teach them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. You see, we've taken on today sort of this mentality that as long as we tell them, everything's okay. But he didn't say just teach them what the Word says. He said, teach them to obey it. Um, I, I'm very concerned about this in, in our churches. I'm very concerned about that in our own lives. You see, we, you've talked about discipleship and your D groups, and this is good. But if we're not real careful, we will define a disciple as someone who knows the Bible. Did you know you could know the Bible and go to hell? I mean, there's a lot of people who know the gospel that won't repent and trust Jesus. They, they know it, they won't obey it. True discipleship is not how much you know, it's how much you obey. And that's where he said, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. James 4.17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and does it not, to him it is sin. Now, the Scripture didn't say to him that knows to do good and does bad, it's sin. It said to him that knows to do good and does nothing, it's sin. How many preachers we have here tonight? Hold them up good and high. God bless you, man. Thank you for being here. How many Sunday school teachers we have here tonight? Hold them up good and high. Look at that. God bless you. I'm fearful that people can come and hear our sermons and hear our Sunday school lessons and they learn to do good, but they do nothing, therefore it is sin. 
Could it be? Could it be that because people are coming to hear our sermons and our, hundred, and our Sunday school lessons, we're making greater sinners out of them? Hmm. We're actually making greater sinners of them because they came to church. What a thought. That'll about rock your world, won't it? But yet that's what James 4, 17 said. And that's the reason as we think about returning to the Word, yes, let's read it. Yes, let's preach it. Yes, let's believe it. Uh, uh, Let's study it. Let's know it. But dear friend, we must move to the obey part of it. If we don't, we've missed the whole reason for it. I, uh, I, I want to speak to you. Uh, again, they mentioned Sunday school. I, I'm the director of Sunday school for Lifeway. Just newly, I went there as a, doing church education ministry, and, and just recently they've also asked me to be the Sunday school director, and I've accepted it. And so I, I want to speak to you on this subject, and you can contextualize it however you'd like. But, but I'm going to speak to you on the subject of an institutionalized Sunday school. Uh, before going to Lifeway two and a half years ago, I served 20 years as a minister of education at First Baptist Church, Woodstock, Georgia. And, and I got an invitation one day from, from Nathan Deal, who is the current governor now. I, I got an invitation to join him at the governor's mansion with about 12 other ministers from the state. And so uh, I'd been there before because the former governor, Sonny Perdue, had invited me down as well, uh, I'd love to tell you that story, but anyway. So I go down to the governor's mansion, and we go in the dining room, and so the, the dozen of or so of us uh, ministers were there, and we sat down, and they fed us a nice lunch. And then Governor Deal spoke to us about the fact that, that, they, that he was concerned about the, the, the people who had been incarcerated in prison in the Georgia penal system, and, and those they, that were released out, and studies had shown, research had shown, that most of them ended up back in prison. Uh, that is, they had been institutionalized so long, they didn't know how to make it when they got out of the four walls. And he said, I believe that we need the faith community and our churches to help us with these particularly men so that we could help assimilate them back into society and they could live as a citizen should without having to get reincarcerated again. They've been institutionalized. Well, my mind gets swirling, don't you see? And I'm thinking, that's our problem. We're producing institutionalized Christians. They come to church, and I mean, in these four walls, they, they know how to operate. They, they know the lingo. They know the language. They know what to say. They know how to act. And, but, but, but yet, when they take the Christianity outside of the four walls of this beautiful building, and they get outside, they cannot make it out in the real world. We've only produced institutionalized Christians. If you will, I want to look at a few passages tonight. But if you will, I want you to turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
and verse 1. Paul writes to his young mentee, his young preacher boy, Timothy, and he says in verse 1, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And then he says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 1 he says, Be strong in the grace. Don't, don't be weak. Be, be strong. And then in verse 3 he says, Man, be a good soldier and endure hardness. I, I tell you, we got a bunch of wimpy Christians now. You know, I, I'm, I'm one of them. But, but we don't endure hardness. All oh, little something comes up against us and oh, we just whine and carry on. I, I tell you, us Baptists, we do not believe in the health and wealth gospel theologically, but we do practically. Because I'll tell you, when something comes against us, I know a man that went into a business and it went belly up on him and, he, and he's blamed God ever since. Well, we don't endure hardness. Be strong. Endure hardness. Look, if you will, back in Ephesians chapter 6. These passages you're very well aware of. But, but Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, when he talks about that armor of God. Look at that if you would. Uh, uh, instead of uh, reading it all, just in, in verse 11, he says that we're to wear the whole armor of God. Not part of it. We, we don't just put on the breastplate. No, we've got we to put on the helmet of salvation and we've got to have that shield of faith and we've got to have our loins girded about with truth. We've got to put on the whole armor. He said put on the, the whole armor of God, not, not just part of it. He, he says it again in verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. And then notice that, that, that we're to stand. Look in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand. Look in verse 13. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that evil day, and then having done all, to stand. And then he mentions it one more time, a total of four times. But look in verse 14. Stand therefore. I tell you, soldiers have got to stand if they're going to win a battle. You can't win a battle laying down. <laughs> but soldiers, what do they do? They stand where they can hold their ground and even take more territory. But, but again, Paul told him, said, endure hardness as a good soldier. Well, a good soldier's got to have some armor. And, and here it is. If, that is, if we're going to be able to stand and withstand outside of these walls so that we're not just an institutionalized Christian. Now, as I pondered this, I thought about why do we have so much institutionalized Christianity? And, and I'm afraid that it's because we've got institutionalized Christian leaders. I spoke moments ago about some leadership stuff, but, but, but I tell you, our Sunday schools have become institutionalized because we're being led by institutionalized leaders. And as I said in there, our leadership is perfectly designed to produce the results we're getting. Uh, you, you see, it, it's time that... I, I've, I've done a bunch of Sunday school conferences. Uh, literally hundreds of them. 
And uh, there was a period of time as I would go to a Sunday school conference and I would train Sunday school leaders, not just a person that just attends. These are Sunday school leaders. But, but I did a little survey thing with them, and, and, and I won't give you the details of how I did all that, but at the end of it, I had 16, or excuse me, 600 surveys that I had gotten back from many different church leaders at many different churches across the country. And here's what these church leaders said. Uh, the, the, the way the survey was laid out. They said that the purpose of Sunday school was twofold. Bible, to have Bible study and to have fellowship. Now I want to say I wouldn't want to go to a Sunday school that didn't have Bible study and fellowship. Amen. Because fellowship usually includes coffee and donuts, don't you see? I'm, I'm, I'm for it. But, but what I want to submit to you is that is a short-sighted vision for Sunday school. It, it leaves out the Great Commission. But, but you see, that's what we produce. We produce people who come and get Bible study. They get knowledge. And, and they get fellowship. But that's the, that's the end of it. You, you, let me tell you, Sunday school teacher, something. You should teach your content with intent. Content should always be taught with intent. The intent that it's going to change a life. The intent that they're going to obey the truths of God's Word. And, and, and if we don't do that, then we're going to produce institutionalized Christians. We've got to do more than the status quo. You've heard the old definition of insanity, to keep on doing what you're doing and expect different results. What, what, status quo is not going to get it. Uh, in the South, you'll understand this. It won't cut the mustard. The, the, the first time I was ever on a mission trip, and I've been on many, but I was teaching uh, in Romania in the seminary there, and they asked me to speak on leadership, and my Romanian interpreter was doing a great job, and it, I, I don't remember what I said, but I said something about, you know, wh whatever, and then I said, that just won't cut the mustard. I realized, by the way, how much colloquialisms I use from the South because I'd never used an interpreter before. And all of a sudden, Cornell was his name. He looks at me and he says, Mustard? <laughs> and I realized I'd done messed up. But y'all get it here, so I can, I can say that. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let, let, let's talk about status quo just a minute, can we? Y you see, here's what we do know. Jesus Christ was not the poster boy for status quo. <laughs> I'm telling you, he rocked the religious world and turned it on its proverbial head, if you will, when he was here on earth. I don't believe Jesus calls us to status quo. Hey, Jesus doesn't call us to just maintain. As soldiers, they take territory. And we ought to go take more territory. That is, more people coming to Christ, more people being converted, more people living by the Word of God. Uh, soldiers take territory. They just don't maintain status quo. I mean, I mean, you stop and think about the people in the Bible that, that God called to move, move beyond status quo. I mean, you think about Moses. I mean, the children of Israel had been in, in Egypt for 400 years, and, and guess what? God said, told Moses, said, I want you to lead them out of there. Lead them out of status quo. And some of them even complained while he was leading them, if you remember. They wanted to go back to status quo. It was the, it was the biggest leadership burden that that Moses had to bear. But God didn't call Moses to keep the children of Israel in status quo. 
You think about Joshua and Caleb. The ten spies, they just wanted to maintain the status quo of faith that they had and didn't want to go forward because what? There were giants in the land and were as grasshoppers in their sight. But yet there was two men that were strong in the grace of the Lord. That was Caleb and Joshua. And they came and, and they revolted, if you will, against the status quo faith of the ten and, and the rest of the people. They were in the minority, but they were right. But they didn't have status quo faith. You, you, you think about Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah, I mean, he, back in those days, guess what? They had political correctness back then. That's the reason they considered him a traitor when he told them of the 70 years of captivity was going to come upon them because of the disobedience to God and, and how that Nebuchadnezzar was going to lead the Babylonians in and capture them. And, and they considered him a traitor because he wasn't politically correct. And, and so he had to buck the system of, uh, of status quo political correctness of his day. I'll tell you, we need some men of God that will do that today too. Think about John the Baptist. <laughs> he, God didn't call him to just maintain the status quo of unrepentant sin, so he come preaching repentance. I think about poor old Isaiah. God didn't call him to, to the status quo of the preaching method of the day. If you remember, he, he called Isaiah, uh, if you will, to, for three years. He, he had to go around naked and barefoot. Y'all remember? How would you like to be called to that ministry, Pastor Sammy? I'm glad God didn't call me to go and preach three years barefoot and naked. I'd sure want a big pulpit to be behind, I can tell you that. Instead of these clear ones I have now. And what about Hosea? I mean, here God called this, this prophet, not, not as other prophets have been called, He called this prophet and told him to go marry a harlot. I mean, can you imagine the pulpit committee interviewing him? I'm glad God didn't call me to Isaiah, and I'm glad He didn't call me to Hosea's ministry. But I'm telling you, God don't always do things status quo. He does things differently. Again, Jesus is not the poster boy for status quo, and he doesn't call his children to be poster boys and girls for status quo. I tell you, if, if Jesus would turn Judaism upside down, again, on its proverbial head, don't think for a minute our churches and our religious institutions are safe. <laughs> in fact, it'd be good if he did, if he just turned us upside down. You see, what's happened in church life nowadays, and I'm as guilty as anybody, but we've carved out our rut, and we don't want to get out of it. We like it just like that. Now I imagine this church had to get out of a rut when, when, when the winds blew. And all of a sudden now you're without a building. I tell you, church wasn't status quo, I bet you, back in them days. You, you have to do things different. But I'm telling you, we, we carve out our rut and we, we stay in it. I want you, if you will, to, uh, to, to, to turn over to Revelation chapter 2. You see, when I look at the book of Revelation, uh, it's very much about God's judgment. I mean, God's going to bring His judgment and wrath that He's going to pour out on the earth during the Great Tribulation. But we see that He's going to 
pour out His wrath against the rebelling nations and the world system. He's going to pour out His wrath on Satan and, and his demons. I'm telling you, God's bringing judgment upon the world. He's bringing judgment upon the nations. He's bringing judgment on the devil and his crowd. I'm telling you, God's bringing a lot of judgment in the book of Revelation. But it's always been interesting to me that of all the judgments in the book of Revelation, He started His judgments with the church. The seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. It's no wonder because we know from, from 1 Peter 4.17 that judgment must begin at the house of God. And so judgment began at seven houses of God. Look, look if you will, at this. In chapter 2, verse 2, when he's writing to the church at Ephesus, he makes this statement to them. I know thy works. God knows our works. Look down in verse 9. Speaking to the church at Smyrna, he says to them, I know thy works. Look down in verse 13, right into the church at Pergamos. He says, I know thy works. Look at verse 19, writing to the church at Thyatira. He says, I know thy works. Look, if you will, in chapter 3 and verse 1, writing to the church at Sardis. He says, uh, down into verse 1, I know thy works. Look at verse 8, if you will, writing to the church at Philadelphia. He says, I know thy works. And then lastly, the church at Laodicea in verse 15, I know thy works. I'll tell you, just keep saying it over and over and over. He has to say it so people like me finally catch it. But I'm telling you, He knows our works. What, what are our works? Notice that He rebuked five of these churches. Look again back in chapter 2 at the church at Ephesus in verse 4. He, he said to the church at Ephesus, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. In, in verse 14, the, the church at, at Pergamos, He says, But I have a few things against you. In verse 20, the church at Thyatira, he says there, notwithstanding, I have a few things against you. Chapter 3, verse 2, the church at Sardis again. He says, I have not found thy works perfect before God. Uh, to the church at Laodicea in verse 16, he said, because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot, he said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I'm telling you, he, he, he judges our, our, our works. He's judging our churches. He's, he's judging us. Because judgment must begin at the house of God. Are we status quo churches? Leading status quo people? Do we have institutionalized Sunday schools just producing institutionalized Christians? Are we just maintaining status quo? You see, I'm afraid that the church is cuddled up in the cocoon of a domesticated faith. Now, I, I get it. It's a big bad world out there, so let's just come in here with other believers uh, and, and let's, just, let's just, if you will, cocoon in here together. I guess that's the reason we sing Kumbaya. We cocoon together with Kumbaya. Um, we, we got to, we're domesticated Christians. It's the same thing as being institutionalized. We're in the house here. We, we, know, how to, we know how to operate. We're, we're domesticated in here. Kind of like an animal. You domesticate an animal, it's supposed to live out in the wild, and when it gets out there, it don't know how to live. It, it dies because it, it just don't know how to make it out there. 
And so we, we've domesticated Christianity to, to the point that we don't know how to live out there. I mean, the word to domesticate means to, to, to train and to tame. It, it means to be fond of the, of the household affairs, if you will. But folks, we cannot raise disciples strong in the grace that can endure hardness in the cocoon of a domesticated faith. We just can't do it. I mean, we, we, we try to raise soldiers in the cocoon of domesticated faith and then wonder why they never get on mission with God. It's because, again, we've, we've domesticated them. We've institutionalized them. Our, our faith, if you will, works great in the church. It works great in the Sunday school class. It, it, it just... Didn't, it just didn't work good out there. I mean, we, we, we're soldiers that when we go into the barracks, the barracks are all neat and nice, but, but soldiers wasn't made, soldiers wasn't trained to live in barracks. Soldiers were trained to go out into the battlefield and do battle. And so often we just sort of rationalize ourselves into this domestication that says that, that we don't need to get that involved and we don't need to get our hands dirty. Folks, come on, let's just be honest. Sharing the gospel, dealing with lost people, dealing with the sinful world, it's just messy. It's just ugly. It's just not a very pretty thing. But yet that's what He's called us to do. You, you see, I'm afraid that so often we're like the priest and Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan. Here's a guy on the side of the road. He's been beat up by the world. He's been beat up by the devil. And, and we come and we, we look at him. But I tell you, that's awful messy. So like that, that priest who would be the preacher of the day and that Levite who'd be like the minister of music today, we just slip on down by the other side and forget that we even saw it. Because it's just messy. We're just too civilized Christians to get involved with that kind of stuff, don't you see? But you see, here's the problem. Every soldier must fight his, his own warfare. Uh, uh, back, back to Ephesians again. Back to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 11. I, I want you to notice the, how that our battle is personal. Every person has to fight their battle. You, you see, you can't fight my battles for me and I can't fight yours for you. Oh, we can encourage each other in the battle. But at the end of the day, you can't fight mine and I can't fight yours. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Look down at verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Verse 14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with the truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of, of the gospel of peace. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. I'm telling you, dear friend, every, every born-again believer must endure hardness as a good soldier because nobody can fight your battles for you. You have to fight your own. Could it be that we're having wonderful Bible studies, wonderful fellowship, but we've drifted into institutionalism without even recognizing it? Could it be? You see, folks, when we were born again, God didn't lay us down in a nice, neat, beautiful, clean maternity ward. When we got born again, He plopped us right down smack dab in the middle of a foxhole. 
we're fighting spiritual warfare. If we're not careful, we protect each other from the battle that wages. If we're not careful, our Sunday school class becomes a cozy little cocoon to hide from the war that wages. I, um, I don't remember the movie, and it's been so long ago that I, I don't remember much about it except there was a scene. And it was, it was a, a war time. And these two soldiers were down in a foxhole, and, and the enemy was out there, and they were, they were firing at them. And, and this one soldier, he had, he, he, he had some experience in, in war, and, and, and he, he jumps out of that foxhole, and I mean, he just starts shooting at that enemy and unloading all of his... his uh, ammunition and, and, he, and he runs out of ammunition and he, and he jumps back down in the foxhole to, to, to reload and, and, and that other soldier is down in there scared to death and wouldn't get out, wouldn't fire his gun or anything. And as the, as the old veteran soldier is loading more ammunition and getting ready to, to fire at his enemy again, he looked at the other soldier and he said, you know what your problem is? He said, you actually think you're going to survive. Folks, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross is a symbol of death. You know, a lot of people, and there's nothing wrong with it, but a lot of people wear a gold chain with a gold cross around their neck, and, and, and that's all right and good, but but, but, but I'm going to tell you, back in the day of Jesus, people wouldn't have done that. Because you see, back in those days, the death, uh, I mean, the, the, the cross represented death. It, it represented shame. It represented guilt. It represented uh, the, the fact that you were rejected by society. They, they, they wouldn't have wore a cross around their neck in that day. It, it would be like us today wearing an electric chair around our neck. We, we wouldn't do that. Why? It's a despicable, despised thing. And so was the cross. And yet Jesus said, notice what He said, if any man come after me. That, there's a condition here. The word if puts a condition. If any man come after me, he must deny himself. I, I wish He hadn't have said that. It's the hardest thing in the Christian life I do. How about you? Now, now if He said, if, if He told me to deny y'all, oh, I could do that so easy. I could obey that. I'm telling you, I could do it easy. That's not what he said to do. He said to deny yourself. I'm telling you, I love me more than anybody I know. That's my problem. But he said, I'm to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. Folks, it's okay if we don't survive because we will survive eternally. But we're to live for his glory. Um, well, well, let me close. My time's up. But, but let, let me just say a couple of other things. Folks, a soldier is not trained to be civilized. A soldier is trained to kill. I served a church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. We had a lot of Navy guys in our church uh, and had some Navy SEALs. One of the guys that 
got saved and was in my Sunday school class was a Navy, he was a, 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 a Navy SEAL for 26 years. His name was Mike. Mike told me that during the Vietnam conflict, three different times the Viet Cong put him on the hit list because they, they needed to get rid of him because he was being so effective. But, but Mike told me at one point, uh, uh, well, he was the point man. And, and he would go out and, and scout things out and, and lead the troops in. And he said one time he was scouting out a Viet Cong camp. And, of course, they had their guards out around. And, and, and Mike said that literally, and excuse me for having to tell it like he had to tell it, but, but he said literally when those Viet Cong guards urinated on me and didn't even know it. And he said, of course, I couldn't do nothing but lay there and take it because if I'd exposed myself, that would have killed me. Uh, when Ronald Reagan sent the troops into Grenada, it was Mike and his men that went in first. And he, he told me that story of sitting out there four miles off the shores in a rubber raft, motorized rubber raft, looking in with, with those night goggles. And, and, and he said, I, I was scared to death. And he said, anybody ever tells you they're not scared? He said, yeah, you are. But he... He had to wait for the right moment to lead those troops in. He actually had soldiers buried in the sands in the beach. He, he told me about the time he was in Panama and was literally sent down there to take out Noriega when he was in office and, and, and how he was dating Noriega's female lawyer, just so not, not that he cared for, just so he could get intel and, and, and how he found out one day he was being followed and, and a guy was out in the car and, and, and he said, I slipped out there and the next thing... That guy knew I had a 44 in his left ear. And I said, Mike, did you kill him? He said, oh no, it would cause too much commotion if I fired that gun. I said, well, what would you do? He said, I reached in and pulled his eyeball out. That way it was, it was quiet, and while he was getting medical attention, I got out of the country. Now, now why do I say all that? I'll tell you why. This man was a good soldier of the United States. I'm telling you, this man endured hardness as a good soldier. He wasn't a wimpy soldier at all. I'm telling you, Mike wasn't trained to be civilized. Mike wasn't trained to maintain status quo. Mike was trained to take territory. And that's what we're trained for. The reason he says go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We're to take territory. How about your church? Is your church taking more territory in this part of of God's creation. Every church ought to be taking more territory. You see, Sunday school shouldn't be a safe place where Christians go and hide and cocoon. Here it is. Sunday school ought to be a boot camp producing more mics, spiritually speaking. That's what it ought to be. That's what a church ought to be. It ought to be. Lieutenant General William Borkham is a celebrated member of Delta Force. He's been deployed many times in different conflicts around the world for the United States government as a 
as a man that's given his life to, to, to do just that. Lieutenant General Borkham said oftentimes at, at war, obviously when a soldier was killed, they would put him in those body bags. And he said before the, that we would ship the bodies back home, one of my jobs was I had to go and I had to bend over and I had to unzip that body bag and make sure the name on the coat bag was indeed the main space that I was looking at. They matched. Lieutenant General Borkman said many times as I had leaned over and looked into that cold, gray, dead face of Soldier Boy, he said, I would ask myself, did I train this soldier to survive? You see, you've heard the statement, untrained soldiers just started to practice the end. So did I train this soldier to survive? And I want to say, if we're going to get back to the Word, we got to make sure that we're training our soldiers in the Word of God. They're going to hear it. They're going to read it. They're going to believe it. But they're going to obey it. They're not just going to be an institutionalized Christian, living status quo, domesticated faith in the cocoon of the church. They're going to take territory. If you would, bow your head. Close your eyes. It's, a, it's an unusual sermon. I, I get that. Uh, because of that, I'm going to do an unusual invitation. I, I, I want the invitation to be right there in your seat. I'm not asking anybody to walk forward. Although I'm okay if you do. If you want to come up here at the altar and pray, I, I want you to feel free to do that. But, but I want to ask you uh, just a few questions and just let you in your own heart meditate on them. Are you an institutionalized Christian? When's the last time you witnessed to a lost person? The, the people that, that know you best, do they know that you walk close to Jesus? What about it, pastor, Sunday school teacher? Are you just producing institutionalized Christians? That cozy up in the cocoon of your, of your church, of your Sunday school class? Are we actually producing soldiers of Jesus Christ who can endure hardness? I want to give you just a moment or two to contemplate that. And then Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. I want to ask you to pray over it. Maybe you just want to make your seat an altar and get on your knees right there. Maybe you want to come down front and pray. However, but